the American Academy of Sports Physical Therapy and JOSPT are joining forces to bring you the virtual Sports PT Conference on Friday the 3rd and Saturday the 4th of November. This is the premier online event for sports physical therapists in 2023. The conference blends the best in clinical practice with the latest in research so that you are in the best position to help the patients and athletes you work with. From what to do to reduce injury risk to top strategies for boosting the athlete's performance, the 2023 online conference has you covered. Check out the link in the show notes to see the full conference program and to secure your ticket. Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. I don't know about you, reading a biomechanics paper and then trying to figure out how to translate what I read to clinical practice always leaves me feeling a little uncertain. Assessing how people move and helping them to move how they want is our bread and butter as clinicians, and today we're learning from two leaders in the sports biomechanics space, Dr. Ilana Arjos and Dr. Stephanie DeStacy from the Ohio State University. Both are alumni of Professor Lynn Snyder-Mackler's lab at the University of Delaware, and if you take a look at a few of the biomechanics papers that might have influenced your clinical practice over the last five years, especially in ACL rehabilitation, you'll probably see Drs. Arjos and Stacey's names there. Today, we're talking about how to read a biomechanics paper, what it means for your clinical practice, and Ilana and Steph share their tips for using biomechanics principles to provide the best clinical care you possibly can. Dr. Ilana Arjos, Dr. Steph DeStacey, welcome to JOSPT Insights. Thanks, Claire. Thank you. Thanks so much, Claire. Thanks for joining me. And today we are benefiting from your collective wisdom honed over years of really outstanding research and clinical practice in clinical biomechanics. And whenever someone starts talking with me about biomechanics, I feel a bit like I'm an imposter in the conversation, which is why it's just such a joy and a privilege to have both of you join us on the podcast today. And I started by looking up the term biomechanics in the PubMed dictionary, and PubMed defines the biomechanical phenomena, and biomechanics falls under that larger title, defines it as the properties, processes, and behavior of biological systems under the action of mechanical forces. My interpretation of that is basically biomechanics is in everything that we do as clinicians. And that's why it's wonderful to have both of you here today. So Ilana, let's start by going back to the research and talking about what to pick out of a paper. I think reading a biomechanics paper to me sometimes feels like I need a translator next to me. And today you are the translator. So how do we make sense of what we're reading? What terms are important and what do they mean? Where would you suggest people start? So I think really when I talk to students and clinicians about understanding a higher level biomechanics paper, I think about really keeping these concepts and these terms and thinking about them at a high level and from there, you kind of keep keep these high-level definitions in mind as you go on to read the paper. So, for example, if you take a manuscript that's describing a single leg squat and comparing mechanics between limbs, first you've got the way the hip and the knee joint kinematics are being described. 
So for example, here you see in this frontal plane, you see individual individually described components like increased hip adduction and internal rotation on the involved side. And clinically, what we really picture is this multiplanar motion of someone going into position of knee valgus. So here we're seeing that biomechanical tools can really help us take apart that multiplanar motion that we see clinically and give us these individual components that we can actually quantify. So when you think of kinematics, you think of things like joint angles and your typical gait cycle and the way that the hip, knee, and ankle joints move during gait. And then you've got your kinetics. And for this, I really encourage people to think about this as the forces on the body. So here you've got you get different terms like torques, forces, joint moments, but really these are all representing a concept of load. And in the clinic, that's something we're really always thinking about is load and how load is affecting um, the way that we move. We think about, especially I think torques and forces can often get described similarly and are a little bit different conceptually. You think about forces as muscles exerting force, but torque more so referring to the force that's applied to a segment actually rotating about an axis. So really, it's considering that rotational component. So I think a clear way to picture this is when you test isometric quadriceps strength and you take into account where the moment arm is, so where the force coming at the leg that's stabilizing the leg is. With the isometric quadriceps strength test, you're really testing the torque of the knee extensors there because you're, you're talking about the force multiplied by the moment arm length or that rotational component of the test. And then the last concept is I think that's important to understand and apply is the concept of a joint moment, which I think can also get muddied when papers start to refer to them as internal moments and external moments. And a way to keep this clear is any time that something's described as external, it refers to a load that's happening to the body. So this is things like gravity, external objects or loads, the ground, whereas internal really refers to this balancing moment that is countered in response to this external moment. And that's typically done by things like your muscles, ligaments, capsules, and bones. So if you read about an internal knee extension moment during gait, that's mostly referring to the quadriceps, which are balancing out the external knee flexion moment that's caused while you're walking by gravity. And authors should typically keep this language consistent throughout a manuscript. But I do really think it's helpful to conceptualize some of these bigger picture key concepts before you begin to read the paper and really visualize clinically what we're talking about when you start to interpret some of the data that's being described too. Absolutely. And that's where we're going to get into some of that today. How do we translate what you read on the page into what you're doing with patients in the clinic? Steph, how do I know whether a paper that I'm reading is good and worth spending my time on? I think we have to go back a little bit to the introduction of the paper where people present their working hypothesis and their research question. and you know, certainly as a clinician seeking information, maybe about a specific population or a specific tool, that introduction has to resonate with you. And that question has to resonate with you. The reason why that hypothesis is so important is because it it tells you the direction the science should be going, what you should expect from the methodology, what you should expect to learn from the data. And I think it's really easy to get sort of pulled in to the the author's interpretation of the work and be less focused on the science itself. So what I usually tell people is, for example, if you have a paper that is asking questions about mechanics related to injury risk and knee injury risk in particular, there are some key variables that they should be evaluating. Ground reaction force, impulses, knee joint excursions. I'm just giving an example as just a few examples. 
what you find in good papers is that the question, the hypotheses, the methods, the variables of interest is all focused. It's pretty linear. And so it feels like it's an easy track to follow. So I like to see everything really line up tightly and be driven by a clinically focused hypothesis. Ilana, I think many people, when you mention the word biomechanics or research and biomechanics together, people will think of gate lab types of studies. Biomechanics is broader than that though, isn't it? So what other sorts of papers or what other sorts of variables or topics might people see in the literature when they're looking at clinical biomechanics? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of other different types of biomechanics that a lot of great clinical researchers are attacking right now. There's a lot of different work being done with tissue mechanics, specifically, you know, with tendon loading and tendon and tendon mechanics as well, and strain relationships, and then also a lot of work with electromyography or EMG, which is really looking at muscle activation and muscle activity and different muscle activation patterns and different movement tasks like throwing for the upper extremity, for example. I think that's a great one to bring up because EMG gives us that concept of which muscles are active when, and as clinicians, that's also often really helpful information. So I like that you, I like that you bring that one to our attention. Steph, let's have a think about the translating part of it now. So translating what we read on the research page into our clinical practice. How do you think about translating things like forces, talks, moments, to what you're doing in the clinic with a patient? First, I want to start by saying that I really do believe most clinicians are already embedding biomechanically informed principles in their practice. Maybe they just don't know it, or maybe they don't want to accept it. I promise you that when we go to clinic, we're not doing like, you know, very complex math calculations in our brain. Um, We're not thinking about how we wish we could be in the lab. We're actually appreciating how we are in the clinic. I think the example of EMG is a really good place to start. We, of course, are focusing very much on musculotendinous function in the clinic. In orthopedic and sports physical therapy, we can do nothing better. It should be optimizing performance of musculotendinous units. That's our bread and butter, I'd like to think. So in the lab, we're studying different features of muscle performance that you can't get tangibly in the clinic, though you're probably already doing some of that inferring. For example, Someone has an ACL injury and they walk with that classically stiff knee gait. We've all seen it before. They're moving their leg like it's a wooden block. And immediately your questions are, do they have the available motion? And if they don't, that leads you down a treatment path. But if they do have the available motion, why are they using that stiff knee gait? We can't see muscle activity in the clinic, but we can infer that the quadriceps are activating in a disrupted way, the hamstrings are acting in a disrupted way. One of the questions we get a lot on the laboratory side is, if the muscles are co-activating, does that mean we shouldn't be strengthening them? And that is not the case. We definitely should not use muscle activity as a surrogate for adequate muscle force or muscle strength. One of the reasons, and Ilana knows this just as well as anybody else, but one of the reasons why we see a lot of muscle activity around ACL injury is because these patients have an unstable joint and either volitionally or by spinal level circuitry and control, they've adopted this pattern of stiffening that happens because the muscles are co-activating in an ineffective way. This is not like a good strategy. 
we also see in parallel with that a ton of weakness in these individuals, right? Quadriceps weakness is like one of the hallmarks um, after ACL injury. And so weakness and this co-contraction strategy are part of what manifest that you all see every day in the clinic as a stiff knee gait. And a couple of the op- opportunities you have in treatment is continue to work on strength and continue to do things like neuromuscular training to disrupt that, that you know, poor co-activation strategy. So, so we have good intuition in the clinic about what might be going on. In the lab, we're just trying to put numbers to that. We're trying to give specifics. We're trying to be really pointed so that you guys can target your intervention in the way that you see fit. You can't hurt yourself as a clinician to assume that your patient has some of these more common biomechanical impairments that are reported in certain patient populations. So continuing with this ACL example, if you just assume, even if you can't visually see it, sometimes if you just assume, you know, we have enough data to say that individuals have a lot of walking asymmetries after ACL reconstruction. If you're approaching your patient with this in the back of your mind and thinking about how you can address some of these components that contribute to it, like effusion, strength, range of motion, you can't hurt your patient by assuming that they have these biomechanical impairments that are so commonly described in the literature. How much of the information that's collected in a lab with more fancy equipment than what most of us will have in the clinic How easy or difficult is it to translate that into clinical practice? Sticking with this, again, example of gait after ACL reconstruction, a way that I like to think about how we translate some of what we see in the lab into the clinic is challenging patients and a little bit of a harder task to kind of start to draw out some of these asymmetries. So say you might not see them walking asymmetrically during walking gait in the clinic, but you know in the lab some of these concepts are shown challenge the patient to walk faster or to run or to jump or to do something that you might be able to draw out some of these biomechanical asymmetries that make them more perceptible to clinicians. We actually see in some of our work that we've published that if you challenge a patient to walk faster, their asymmetries grow even larger. So the uninvolved leg is responding to that increase in speed like you would expect that it would. The the knee angles are increasing, the joint moments are increasing. However, the ACL reconstructed limb remains stiff. And so it kind of really starts to bring out these asymmetries. So I think challenging patients in different ways so you can start to pick up some of what we see in the lab in a clinical setting. And Steph, what's the practical difference between the data that are collected with this very expensive lab equipment? Building on this ACL example, because we've all gone there, the in-ground force plates that you've got in your beautiful lab at Ohio State, What's the practical difference between what we would collect there and something that's maybe more commercially available and perhaps people might have in their in their clinic, something like a Wii balance board? I think that the practical difference is resolution. (laughs) And I also believe that what is coming available on the market, the new technologies that are constantly emerging, emerging rather, are getting us closer and closer to higher resolution information so that we can make even better decisions in the clinic. You know, in the lab, we get three forces and three moments in that force plate. In the clinic, I probably can argue that you don't need all of that information. If you have someone, again, with a stiff knee or a stiff ankle or a stiff hip or back pain, and they're doing a return to run program, and you're listening to their footfalls on the treadmill, the things that you're hearing are basically the vertical force. It's the Z force that we get in our very expensive lab on our very expensive treadmill. 
you don't need that, right? Intuitively, you're hearing the different sounds of the football. You're saying like, oh, that's something there sounds sort of clunky and asymmetrical. You're already picking up on that. The challenge in the clinical setting is that when those differences become much lower or smaller, it is harder to pick that up. And so when you do have someone in the clinic where you're thinking, you know, man, that their joint is still a little bit swollen. They're telling me the running doesn't feel quite right. And I just can't hear or see or think about where the asymmetries are. Maybe that's the time to refer them out to a, a fancy lab like ours and have something evaluated. But the fact of the matter is, I'm using all your senses. A lot of times you can pick up on these different elements, ground reaction force being one of those things, the, the loudness of the landings. And there's been some work in that, in that area. Of course, we can capture three-dimensional motion and all the joints at the same time. But your eyes are doing a pretty good job of sensing that as well. You just have to move your body or move your patient's body about in space. So making sure that any technology setup that you do have, we know a lot of clinicians and clinics will use 2D video, appreciating the movement from at least one plane, preferably two, will give you some sense of that three-dimensional component, right? You're looking from an AP view because you want to understand what is going on with that knee valgus. You know, is it coming mostly from the hip? Is it coming mostly from the, the shank relative to the femur? Is it the ankle that's the problem? But you're also coming around and getting a sagittal plane view because you're thinking maybe the reason why I'm hearing a loud landing is because they're not using their joints like dampening springs like they should. They're not going through enough excursion that's easily observed in the sagittal plane. They should be going through 90 more or plus degrees of knee flexion and hip flexion. If you don't see that, then you say, all right, you have a loud landing. You're not going through enough excursion. Let's try this. Can you land, get lower to the ground as you jump? Can you land softer, like you're barefoot on, you know, pebbles on the ground? You know, you're giving them these visualizations to make changes in those mechanical variables that we spend a ton of time, you know, discerning and, and figuring out in the lab. So there's a lot of overlap. And like I said, practically, it's really about resolution. And so I think for a lot of our patients in, in a good portion of their recovery, you might not need that level of resolution. Ilana, I'm going to throw this one to you. What what would you recommend to folks listening to us today who have got minimum budget, they're trying to do a good job at setting up a basic biomechanics mini lab in their clinic, what would you recommend that they they spend their money on? I think for me, the two biggest things that you're going to want to do if you're trying to objectively capture some biomechanical data would be cameras, 2D cameras, any sort of two-dimensional cameras really will do. Like Steph was saying, you can put them in different planes and collect data that way. I think something to really keep in mind with 2D cameras, they're really great at allowing you to quantify movement. But you do need to make sure that your setup is reproducible so that you're effectively measuring the same thing each visit. It's really great to be able to use some of this objective data for reimbursement purposes to say that some of your interventions are working and you're, they're associated with improvements in function and pain and changes in movement. But it's also good to make sure that you're measuring things the same way each time. So something like marking a line on the floor so you know that this is where the patient standing and this is where your camera is each time so that you can ensure consistency between time points that you see patients. And then I think a portable forced plate or balance system is also great. Something that's less expensive and space saving would be great just to give patients any sort of feedback about how they're maybe shifting their load or shifting their weight with landings or 
walking or jumping, you know, there's a lot of different ways that you can use that. And I think it's a great initial feedback tool for patients when you're trying to help them understand some of the ways that they're moving as well. A lot of the shiny and new rehab tool, just like any other shiny and new rehab tool that we have, you know, more expensive isn't always more effective when you're thinking about a clinical setting. So really just this idea of being able to put some objective data numbers to movement and seeing if we're improving mechanics and reducing pain and helping our patients is what we're looking for when we're thinking about biomechanical equipment in the clinic. You know, we're all wearing these things around our wrists these days. I really feel like there's some untapped opportunity in wearable technology. We do know that there are limitations with wrist-worn devices versus accelerometers that go on your limbs, but we have so little ability to get inside of the patient's real world experience and understand what they're doing every day. And even if it's as simple as a step counter, and even if it's as complicated as accelerometry on their legs, this is a missed opportunity that I think we should really lean into. We try so hard in the clinic to control the environment, to control the load, to modify the load, to titrate the load. And where we've really been sort of ignoring the information that patients are bringing in with them right on their own wrists. Absolutely, Steph. And I love that you've brought up the wearables and our colleagues who work in the running world are probably doing, are at the forefront of this in our musculoskeletal rehabilitation space. Now, Steph, while we're talking about tech and we've talked about the basic setup and the and the things that you really want to try to push to get in the clinic, if you have got a bit of extra cash available to you, what are the things that you might upgrade, you might think about upgrading or that you would encourage folks listening to consider upgrading? Any technology, you know, we, we're movement specialists, so we want to be able to capture movement. We've talked about 2D cameras, we've talked about force plates or balance plates, but really what we have been hearing from clinicians for a long time, what I experienced as a clinician is that some of the barriers to collecting those data and interacting with that technology is time and automation. And so if you have the extra money to spend, get that software support package, get that integrated laptop that's going to give visual feedback on the forces coming from the plates or you know center pressure information right then and there so that you can spend your time providing the great care that you want to provide and not being bogged down in the the technological lift and the you know the issues that can happen if you're trying to do something that's more piecemeal think about spending that extra little money in your budget to make sure that you have a highly integrated system and maybe even a, a space that's already set up and ready to go for you lots of clinics are limited on space but if you can carve out an area that you just always say like this is our motion analysis space right and get your patient into that space so that setup time is streamlined, so that the processes are streamlined, that the data collection is streamlined. All of that makes a huge difference and I think just can optimize the patient experience. I love how we've just naturally segued from using the tech to assess what's going on to then having the information inform the decisions that you in collaboration with the patient make or that you you and, and the patient make together. It's a beautiful, I think it's a beautiful way of demonstrating why we should care about clinical biomechanics and, and why we're having this chat today. So Ilana, as we start to wrap up, what's one message that you would like to leave listeners with today as they as they go back to their clinical practice and think about integrating clinical biomechanics maybe more consciously? I love biomechanics and I also love treating patients and being a clinician. And I think there's a lot to learn from the biomechanical literature. 
I think my biggest take home point would be don't be afraid of these papers. You know, I think a good paper and a good author group will lead you through the paper and the relevance and why it matters to you as clinicians. Look for papers that have clinician author groups as part of them, OTs, PTs, ATs, a whole host of different types of clinicians as authors, because these are the people that are going to be framing some of these questions really in a more clinical framework and will probably leave you with an idea of clinical relevance at the end of it, too. I think the thing that we really resonates with Ilana and I and other biomechanists and clinicians who do really clinically applied work is don't be afraid of us. Don't be afraid of the work we do. We absolutely need to do better in the way in which we communicate this information. You all are probably really pulling in and acting, assessing and acting on patient needs with mechanics in mind. You just might not have been previously as intentional or thinking as deeply about it. So hopefully this gives context to keep going and and keep bringing that mechanically informed sense to your practice. Today's been such a great way of, I think, demystifying clinical biomechanics. You've certainly both helped me a ton in understanding what I'm reading in a paper how I take that information from the paper into the clinic and also how I can do better as a clinician at capturing this information and then having that information inform some of the decisions that I make in practice. So Dr. Ilana Ahos and Dr. Steph DeStacey, thanks so much for joining me on JOSPT Insights. Claire, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much for having us, Claire. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT and Facebook, where JOSPT official. Talk with you next time.